Counting Game Epilogue Five, six, seven... Andrew counted the eight gleaming white marquees scattered around the campus, multiplied by three sessions per day for five festival days. One hundred and twenty. Then, continuing his game, he thought back to the remark he had just heard. At least 25% of all books written are crime books. So, it was possible that 30 sessions would be covering crime. Andrew felt a surge of excitement. For over 35 years, boredom had channeled Andrew Kendrick's energies into the counting game, and old habits were hard to break. But he had a sneaking suspicion that was about to change. He had a new hobby. He was at the Brisbane Writers' Festival, and Andrew had just decided to kill his wife. Not fantasise about it, which he had done for ten years, or plan it, which he had done for two, but actually doing it. The first session, entitled Feel for Steel, had been hosted by a well-known radio personality with a panel of two full-time writers and a high court judge, who by his own admission, I only write as a bit of a hobby. But whereas the other two writers admitted to writing about sleazy backstreet pimps and drug addicts, his honour had referred to his characters as Ordinary members of the community, like you and me, he had said, and Andrew felt a thrill to be included in this elite group of literary murderers. He had left the marquee with a sense of anticipation. For the first time since giving up work ten years ago, he felt he was in the company of like-minded thinkers, wife-sufferers like him. For a long time, the Kendrick marriage had suffered two distinct veins. Courtesy, combined with polite endearments when with company. Darling, you remember Alicia, my old school friend from England, don't you? And apathy, sliding into dislike, now bordering on loathing, during more intimate times, If you had any interest in what I said, Andrew, you would remember I distinctly told you Alicia was a horrendous bore. Both Andrew and Helen had been late bloomers in the marriage stakes. What beauty Helen may have had when in her youth was fast disappearing at age 35 when she and Andrew met at a dinner party. It was of little concern for what nature was fast depleting, cosmetic procedures were rapidly replacing, and Helen's money, or rather Helen's daddy's money, was like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. In fact, it was that pot of gold that had attracted the 40-year-old Andrew, whose once debonair good looks were also fading, as had his job prospects years before. He had hung on to his job at Hanson Imports for one reason only, to marry the boss's daughter. And on this front, at least, he had been successful. But all of that was far behind them, as was Daddy, who had long been pushing up the proverbial daisies. Even though not the brightest of ladies, Helen had known that by keeping her hands on the purse strings, she also kept her hands on Andrew, who was, at least, a pleasant escort, chauffeur, handyman, and, to all appearances, a model husband. 
I need to be at the festival by 9.30am, Helen had said that morning as she got into the passenger seat of the car. I want to attend the Indigenous welcome in the River Marquis and want to meet up with the girls beforehand. Then we'll be having coffee until the noon session in the Cremorn, at which time we want to have lunch. So you don't need to pick me up until, oh, about 2.30. I want, I want, Andrew thought grumpily as he manoeuvred the car through the morning traffic. What about what I want? But he didn't say that. Instead, he said... By the time I let you out and negotiate the traffic back home, it will be time to come out again. Can't you catch the train? I could do, Andrew, but I don't want to. They're dirty these days and quite unsafe. Anyway, you haven't anything else to do with your time? That part was true, and the reason he had wandered over to the information store for a timetable after depositing Helen with the group of colour-tinted, bulldog-chinned matrons she called the girls. Intrigued with the concept of talking about murder from a writer's perspective, Andrew had attended the first writer session, becoming particularly interested in the Q&A segment. Why do you think crime stories are so popular? A stout middle-aged man from the audience had asked one of the panellists. The author of a series of private eye novels had been quick with his answer. He had obviously faced this one before. Because there is probably no one in this audience who has not thought of, plotted or dreamt of killing someone at least half a dozen times in their life. By reading about it, the story acts as therapy. Andrew walked back through the campus considering this response. Therapy? Bullshit. He wanted his wife dead. And this was so much more complicated when your position, your money and your membership at the golf club all depended on the marriage lasting. Helen said she was exhausted after her day and went to bed. I don't think I'll stay at all the sessions tomorrow, Andrew. It's a different crowd this year. More into popular fiction than true literature, she had said, while lavishly applying cold cream to her face. Really, I hadn't noticed. Andrew responded, but he was lying. It was nice to see so many relaxed people all sharing a common interest. An interest in books, in writing, in reading, in murder. Driving back through the leafy roads to their mansion overlooking the river at Ascot the next afternoon, Andrew thought back on the day's subjects, such as motivation for murder, opportunity, weapons and forensic technologies. Helen had spent the day at an Ikebana class in the morning and Hong Shui at the afternoon. She was resting when he went through the door, but was gracious enough to suggest they eat at home that evening. It was then Helen made her big mistake. I've accepted an invitation to attend the golf fundraising visits at Brisbane Art Theatre tomorrow, she said. So do be sure to be home early in order to change and be ready to go out again soon after six. But that's impossible, said Andrew, thinking of the last session of the evening, entitled The Criminal Mind, which was not due to finish until 5.30pm. What do you mean, impossible? Helen stared at him in amazement, 
What on earth can be more important? Well, of course, there were plenty of things far more important than attending a fund-raising theatre group for the gratuitously overfunded golf club. It was just not that easy to explain it. Have you planned for us to go with anyone? He asked innocently. Why, yes, the Miltons, of course, Helen admitted. We haven't seen Frank and June since our trip to the Caribbean, and I want to show them the photographs of our hotels. They're going to pick us up at 6.30. Andrew was relieved. Good. I'll meet you there, then. He got up quickly before Helen could quiz him on the reason for this. He was far too content with life to get involved in petty squabbles. It promised to be a particularly beautiful day when Andrew set out later the next morning and indeed did not disappoint him. He was fortunate enough to get into conversation with a writer from the local crime writers group when he visited their own small promotional tent. Posing as a new writer himself, he was told by an enthusiastic grey-haired grandma, You really should buy 101 undetectable poisons. There are a lot of reference books about it, but that is by far the best. I've used the references in quite a few of my stories, and even people in the medical profession can't fault with the way I kill off my characters. Andrew had hurried across the bridge to the central bookstore in town during the lunch hour and could hardly wait for a quiet moment to read it through. It was so exciting. He hadn't realised such books existed. The afternoon was full of interesting speakers, so he was more annoyed than ever that he had to leave early for the repertory theatre that evening and waited irritably in the foyer, counting the posters on the walls. There you are, old man. How are you? Frank Milton's jovial greeting woke Andrew out of the reverie as Helen and her small party joined them. So what have you been up to all day? Just the usual pottering around here and there, Andrew muttered. How about you? Much the same. Drove June to the dentist this morning, meet at the doctor this afternoon. Gut trouble again. We seem to live there these days. He droned on and Andrew was glad when it was time to go through to the auditorium. The art theatre did a reasonably good job on Chekhov's The Three Sisters, but within minutes Andrew found his mind wandering onto all the day's events. He had even less to say over their customary post-theatre drink, which was not lost on Helen. She grumbled at him all the way home in the car. It's embarrassing, you know, she said as she adjusted her seatbelt. I'm beginning to think you don't like any of our friends. Andrew began to protest that this wasn't true, but plucking up courage from some of the seminars he had attended recently agreed with her. Well, it isn't that I don't like them in particular, he said. It's more, they are your friends, not mine, and I don't like most of the things you like. He was aware of Helen's incredulous stare and smiled to himself in the darkness. Then in order to top the remark, he added, Well, it isn't that I don't like them in particular. In fact, Helen, there are many times when I don't like you. He didn't see Helen's mouth drop open, but knew it had. He was enjoying himself, and as if intoxicated with truth, he continued, To be even more honest, most of the time, I dislike you intensely. 
you are boring and egotistical and self-opinionated and... By time they had arrived home, he had dumped a litany of home truths on his wife. All her bad habits, all the irritations and a good many inadequacies he had just thought up. Helen sat mutely by his side in a daze of confusion. What has brought this on? she asked as they parked the car and went up to their bedroom. Well, I attended some writer's sessions on crime today and not only found them interesting and informative, but I realise I don't have to put up with your whinging ways anymore. What on earth do you mean you don't have to put up with me anymore? There are ways, things a fellow can do. Andrew had suggested provocatively before walking off, grinning. What was the saying? The something had turned? Well, he had finally turned. Done a somersault, in fact. Boy, it felt good. Helen's mouth had opened with a dozen unasked questions. She needed to think about this new development in her marriage. She had always thought herself to be the long-suffering one, the spouse with the deadbeat husband, the dullard, the lump of inertia. This was new. Flushed with success and needing to prove his dominance even further, Andrew moved his belongings into the spare room that evening and spent a good few hours settling himself into his new male quarters before turning himself in for sleep. Either by accident or design, Helen kept out of his way the next morning. At ten o'clock, however, she must have had a momentary denial of the previous night's disclosures because she called up the stairs... Andrew, I'll be late for the hairdressers if you don't get a move on. And there was irritation in her voice. You certainly will be late if you haven't called for a taxi. He called out affably. Because I'm certainly not taking you. The silence from below was deafening and sweetness to his ears. Even more pleasurable was the sound of the telephone being dialed. I need a taxi immediately. And a minute or so later, the door was slammed. Upstairs in the small back bedroom, Andrew did a little jig of victory. The adrenaline was pumping through his veins in an exciting and invigorating fashion. Oh, this was good. So good. In fact, the next few days were ecstasy. He read the poison book from end to end hiding it under the mattress at night. But then going back over the notes he had made at the Writers' Festival, he came upon an interesting quote from one of the writers. You can build up some great suspense and antagonism between the victim and the suspect if he leaves clues around the house. He had written. It provides a kind of mental abuse, which will then unstabilise the victim to begin erratic behaviours. With the festival over and a certain amount of newfound freedom from the taxi service he had been providing for years, Andrew now spent a good deal of time in the local library. He had explained to the librarian he was an amateur crime writer and been directed to many useful books, including famous suicide notes, which he had taken home under cover of his coat. But once again, he decided to leave it openly in his room, along with a few trial compositions of his own. After all, it wouldn't hurt if Helen realised once and for all that he was not a happy chappy. When he got further down the track of killing off Helen, they could well be useful. He began to take a special interest in her signature. 
He must practice that. It would be important. But in all honesty, the drive had been lessened by Helen's changed behaviour. She continued with much of her usual activities, but nowadays did not expect to be taxied or picked up. He was delighted with the response. For the first time in his married life, he had a meek, almost subservient wife, whose only expectation was for him to arrive at the dinner table in time to be served a piping hot meal. It was just a week later, after a particularly tempting Thai green curry lunch, that Andrew became conscious of a dull ache in his gut. He was not prone to sickness and found himself telling Helen as much for sympathy. Maybe it's my appendix. Perhaps I should go to the emergency straight away. Oh, more likely to be diverticulitis, she said factually. It's a disease ageing men are inclined to get when they don't watch their diet. Don't you remember Frank was saying at the play he had just been diagnosed with it? And his symptoms were just like yours. He can't eat red meat or anything with seeds in it. Nuts, for instance. And you had that sesame dip as an entree for lunch. If you are still as bad at 5pm this afternoon, I'll ring up and make an appointment for you at Dr Denton's for tomorrow morning. Andrew vaguely remembered something being discussed about Frank's diet at the play and nodded his head. It was true. He had taken some large helpings of the sesame dip, which had first tasted delicious and prompted him to overindulge. By that evening, the pain was getting worse, so Helen suggested he went to bed while she rang the doctor. I'll make up some antacid mixture, she said kindly. It may not help, but it certainly won't hurt. A few minutes later, she came into the darkened room, holding the glass carefully. Come on, drink up to the very last drop. Obediently, he did as told, rather enjoying her authoritative manner in her new nursing role. The thick, gluggy mixture tasted horrible. He handed out the empty glass to her to prove it had all gone. She smiled sweetly. Good boy, she said, turning out the light. Put the glass on the table and I'll bring another dose later on. By midnight, he knew he was very ill. He was sweating profusely and the pain was excruciating. He suspected he was passing in and out of consciousness and only vaguely aware of Helen beside him, taking his temperature and feeling his pulse. I thought so. You have a temperature of 101 degrees, she said, with what he considered with satisfaction. I rang Dr. Denton and he has sent around a prescription for some medicine. I'll just pop out to get it. You should take some in warm milk after a light supper. I'll fix you a small bowl of muesli and yoghurt. An hour later, Andrew forced the snack down, squirming with the gritty mush. As he stacked the dish on the side table, he noted how weak he was. Then he lay back on the bed. At least his ill state of health had brought out the best in Helen. She had never been as caring as this in all their thirty years of marriage. He allowed himself to sink into a childlike sleep, only waking up with even more intensified pain. It was 3am. The graveyard shift, Helen said cheerfully as she came into the room with a tray. No, 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 I can't eat or drink anything more, he said, waving her away limply. Oh, no need, no need. I'm pretty sure you've had enough. 
enough? Her words puzzled him. But then he was seeing and hearing everything through a haze of pain. His befuddled mind could not fathom what she had meant by enough. And what was she wearing? Gloves? Kitchen gloves? He had never known Helen to put her hands in any form of soap suds that were not a bathing routine. What on earth was she doing with the tray? Trying desperately to focus, he took in the carton she was carefully placing on the night table beside him. The brand new packet of rat poison was open. She placed it carefully, just slightly out of reach. Then she propped something beside it. He couldn't see. And then he could. Although there was little light coming through the drawn curtains, he recognised his own handwriting. It was the practice note he had written when trying to compose a suicide note for Helen. He looked up at her smiling face. Thank you so much for all your efforts, darling, she said. It saved me so much trouble. Divorce lawyers are so expensive. But you needn't have bothered with the poison book. The ones listed are mostly unidentifiable, can't be traced. This is much better and contains warfarin and bromodiolone nasties. And thank you so much for making it easy. You've almost orchestrated your own suicide to perfection. All I had to do was chop off my name at the bottom. She picked up his book on poisons and turned to page 140, featuring rat poisons, firmly pushing the page down flat before propping it back on the table. Not long to wait now that your body has built up an intolerance, she looked at her watch and quietly began counting. One, two, three... 21, 62. She looked at him, smiling gently. The book says it should take approximately three minutes after that final dose. She took another look at her watch. In spite of his pain, Andrew's old habit kicked in, and he found himself joining her. 110... A hundred and eleven, a hundred and twelve... He never made it to one hundred and eighty. You have been listening to The Counting Game, Epilogue. Written and read by Brianda Cross. Performed by Brianda Cross, John Cross and Gerard Turner. If you have enjoyed this story, please go to our website, check us out for any more that you might find interest, and give us a like on Facebook. So helpful, and a lovely New Year present for us. Thank you.